Thanks for being here, guys. A lot of, a lot of great wedding conversation happening here, I can tell. If you're new with Sedaris, I'm going to teach you something here. No matter how much we prep these mics beforehand, they come out boomy at you. I'm so sorry. But our sound team is great. They're great at dialing it in. So um, great wedding conversations. I couldn't help but think of my least favorite wedding that I went to, uh, which is where we drove across the country from Denver down to Waco, Texas, me and my lovely uh, bride, um, in August. Outdoor wedding. It was about 107 degrees. In fact, on the drive down there, the thing that keeps your windshield on, there's like a rubber thing that's glued around the side of your... It, it was so hot that it melted and came off the car as we drove into Waco, Texas. Um, and then we proceeded to get, quickly get into a fight at that wedding, which made it uh, kind of a terrible wedding. But it's actually really good. I'm bringing this up only because we're looking at a wedding right now here in John chapter 2, and there seems to be a fight happening at this wedding. And so if you brought your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. Open up to the Gospel of John, or if you have these little blue ones that, um, that we have given you guys, open that up as well. If you don't yet have a, um, a little Bible with the Gospel, just the Gospel of John that has note spaces for notes, they're, they're on the back windowsills. We handed out a bunch of those when we started the, the series, this series in John at the beginning of the year. Um, and this is a series that, so we started at the beginning of the year, and now at the end of February, we're coming into the second chapter. Hey, so we're going to be in it for a while, so that's going to be something that you can use for a while, okay? And so um, if you need to stand up and go grab one, there's little piles of these blue, um, these, these blue Gospels of John back there. When you get it, uh, open up to chapter two. Chapter two is where we're going to be working from this morning, and um, I'm going to read it for us, and we'll just jump right in. Does that sound good? Here it goes. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Is this a fight? What's going on here? Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, there together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. An amazing account. John brings it to us. Um, none of the other gospel writers uh, bring it to us, but we've talked about this already. John's trying to trailblaze things that we actually haven't heard already about Christianity as the, the gospel writer who's writing last. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. John is writing now, and he's trying to give us things about Jesus' ministry that the church didn't have yet, that they, that, that they hadn't had preserved in writing for them yet. And so that's what we're doing here today. And um, each week at Alpha... I love uh, Alpha. We, we host this to CCC, like, like David mentioned. Each week at Alpha, um, the format is um, dinner, video, where you watch a, a British man named Nicky Gumbel 
give a talk and, and then discussion afterwards. But before it cuts to Nikki Gumbel giving the, the talk, uh, what the fine people at Alpha has, have done is they've gone to the streets. They've done all these street interviews. Uh, which is really fun, you know. So you have all these uh, London, Londonites uh, answering spiritual questions. They, they just prompt them with a, a, a big spiritual question, and, and these Londonites, uh, the, the random passerbys, they provide answers. And one of which is, uh, who is Jesus, okay? And there's this one guy who's a bit of a cynic and a lot of a joker uh, who, who says this. He's like, yeah, I'm going to try a British accent. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Jesus was this bloke who, you know, he kind of kept a bottle of wine in his back pocket and uh, he would slide a hand, just switch it out every now and then. It's kind of like a, a, a parlor trick. Terrible. But I love, I love that joke. I love that joke. It gets me each and every time. We've done Alpha a handful of times now. And it gets me each and every time. I just love that joke. And that joke comes from this account here. Jesus changing water into wine. It's a great joke. It's a great joke. Um, and here in this account, John's going to highlight several big ideas about Jesus. Um, lots of big ideas about Jesus. Most of them tend to go right over our heads. And so we're going to roll up our sleeves and we are going to dive into them because what John's trying to do is he's trying to help people figure out what it means to follow Jesus. That's one of his big goals throughout the course of, of his work here. What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? And I think that's a question that a lot of us have, like, do I pray more now? Uh, do I read my Bible more now? Do I talk about it more now? Like, like what, do, what does that actually do? What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? John's trying to help us answer that question. Um, so a lot of times, I think, when people become Christians, uh, we've seen this happen time and time again here at, at Sedaris. People become Christians, and, and they're kind of unclear. Like, what, did I, what am I actually signing up for here? What am I signing up for, you know? And John helps us answer that question. So let's just jump right into it. At the beginning here, it says on the third day. There's actually a, a Greek word there at the beginning that isn't translated in this translation. It's a simple word, chi, or and. And. And on the third day. It's right there. John is actually attaching this to chapter one, everything that's come before. And he's doing this um, because this and on the third day uh, would leave us with a question if it didn't have an and in it an and in front of it. Like, why are we talking about the third day here? What's, what's going on? Well, John actually has a really clever organization of his material up to this point. Um, that is day by day. So the first day actually starts all the way back in verse 19. So if you have your, your Bible or your little blue book that we handed out, just write day one right there at, at verse 19. That's when the, the priests and the, and the Levites come down from Jerusalem and they're talking to John the Baptist, asking John the Baptist, hey, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. Then uh, skip down to verse uh, 29. That passage starts off with the next day. You can write in day two in your Bible there. That, that, that's when John the, the baptizer, the Baptist, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, that's day two. Then skip down to verse 35, there's the same thing. The next day. This is when John the baptizer sees Jesus again and tells two of his disciples, hey, he's the Lamb of God. And those two disciples are, are Andrew and we believe John. Uh, and these are disciples of John the, the Baptist. And so they go and they go to Jesus and then Andrew goes and gets Peter. They, that, that's, that's day three. And then at verse 43, the same thing on the next day. This is when Philip and Nathaniel get added to the ranks. So after four days, Jesus has come on the scene and he has five disciples. And then we, at the beginning of chapter two, we have, and 
on the third day. And on the third day. Or you could translate it, and three days later. And adding these three days to the four that preceded it, what do we have? We have a week. We have the first week of Jesus' ministry. After this, all of the day counting is going to stop until chapter 12 when we get to the last day, the last week of Jesus' ministry before his resurrection. So this is what John has done. He's kind of front-loaded Jesus' ministry at the first week of his ministry, and then he's back-loaded. The, the back half of his book is going to be about all, everything that happened in and around Jerusalem in Jesus' last week of ministry. So that, that's what's going on. That's why we have this strange on the third day here. There's no like allegorized stuff that, that people have theorized a lot of things. It's just how John has organized his material. And here at the end of Jesus' first week, he's going to do something absolutely incredible that we just saw. His disciples are going to go with him to a wedding. We're not sure how many there are. Maybe there's, there's at least five. Maybe he added a couple others in these three days. But he's going to turn water into wine. He's going to do this extraordinary and supernatural sign. And in order to understand what's going on here, we're going to just unpack three things together. We're going to, under, uh, we're going to unpack this interaction that takes place between him and Mary. Then we're going to un- unpack the sign itself then we're going to look at the disciples, which actually might be what John really wants us to look at. Remember that question, what does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Third thing is the disciples. So let's look at this interaction between Jesus and Mary, his mom Mary. It's very curious, very curious interaction, is it not? She, she lets him know that the wedding feast, um, many wedding feasts would run for an entire week. Uh, he, she says, hey, they're out of wine. It's, it's interesting that uh, this comes actually right after uh, it says Jesus shows up with his disciples and there's this Greek phrase that says wanting wine. It doesn't really get translated. Like the disciples are like, hey, where's the wine? We're at a wedding. Mary's like, hey, they're out of wine. And, and then Jesus uh, seems to give this very curt reply. What does that have to do with me, woman? Oof. <laughs> Yikes. What is that all about? And then he says, my hour is not yet come. It's like, so is Jesus saying, it's not time for me to be doing stuff like this? But then Mary does something strange. She goes and gets the wait staff involved. Like, what's going on here? This is very counterintuitive. She's doing the opposite of what Jesus seems to have just said to her. This is very confusing. Jesus seems to rudely dismiss Mary, okay? Tack on this woman. Is Jesus disrespecting his mother? Then he says, my hour has not yet come. Like me and the Father, we have this plan. That's, I'm supposed to hold off on doing stuff like this. But then he does it anyway. So, so here at the first week of Jesus' ministry, what we have is Jesus disrespecting his mother, disobeying his father. This is some Messiah, some Jewish Messiah coming in and just completely disregarding Ten Commandments, in particular, honor your father and your mother. Okay? What's going on here? Jesus well, let's take this one piece at a time. Um, first, I want to deal with what might seem as the most pejorative and glaring thing here, which is Jesus calling his mother woman. I would not recommend this. I def- <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. I do not do this. Um, maybe let's not WWJD on this one, huh? Like, don't do that. Is Jesus using this phrase pejoratively? Well, I think not. I think not. Um, and how do we know this? Because John is using a Greek word here. And it's likely that Jesus actually didn't use 
a Greek word when he addressed his mother. This is like another layer of complexity in the Gospels that uh, I find that, that, that is kind of an interesting rabbit trail to go down. We're not going to go all the way down it here, but, but most of what Jesus said that's captured for us in the Gospels, 100% of it's written in Greek. Most of it he said in Aramaic and Hebrew. So we have translations here that the apostles are doing. So what we have to do is we have to lean on the apostle John to say, where else do you use this word when Jesus uses it that might give us a little bit more context to figure out what's going on here? We have just such an instance, and it's a bonus because it's actually also between Jesus and Mary. It's all the way in chapter 19. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He looks down at his mother, and out of love for her, out of care for her, out of compassion because she's getting her firstborn son ripped out of her arms. He looks down on her and he says, woman, behold your son. He's called John over. This is going to be my replacement. This is my replacement. And he says, son, behold your mother. So he uses this word woman in that instance in a a context of care, of of love, of empathy. He also uses it again to address um, another Mary, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene has run to the tomb in chapter 20 and she finds it completely empty. She's crying. She's crying. She reaches out to him. She thinks that it's just the gardener at this point. She says, he says, woman. He's trying to console her. So this, this term woman can mean a lot of things. And in, in, in the other instances that we see Jesus use it, um, it seems to be actually, John is using it in context of care. It's very confusing in light of what has just come right before that. What Jesus has just said right before that. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Well, this is actually a very common Greek idiom. This is a very common Greek idiom, which is, which is best translated very closely. What does this have to do with you and me? What does this have to, you, to do with you and me? Used obviously to kind of refuse someone's request. So, to say no, it's a very popular Greek idiom of the time. Um, in fact, if you're a student of the Gospels, you, you, you might recognize it. This is an idiom that's employed five other times in the Gospel accounts of demons to Jesus. <laughs> when Jesus walks into the room and the, Jesus, and the demon's like, what do you have to do with me? What do you have to do with us? Jesus, get away from us. Leave us alone. Is Jesus asking his mother to leave him alone? Is that what's going on here? Very competing messages here. Very competing messages. And then Mary, she goes straight to the servants and does the exact opposite of what Jesus seems to have implied. So what's really going on here? How, how could this be? Well, I would say that this all becomes really, really clear when we realize that we actually have a category for an interaction like this. We just might be surprised to see that Jesus is the one that has used it. If I were to say February's in Seattle are beautiful, well, what am I doing? I'm being sarcastic. I'm saying one thing, but meaning the complete opposite. And, and I think that's what's going on here. And so when Mary leans over to Jesus and says, hey, they are out of wine, it might be perhaps with a, a, a twinkle in his eye, a grin in his mouth, and he says, what does that have to do with you and me, Mary? Everything. Everything. Jesus is the author of marriage. All of humanity was created through him. Bringing people together in flesh and blood is a picture. Every marriage is a picture of the future consummation to happen between him and his people at some point in the future. 
He loves weddings. He celebrates weddings. He wants to help these people celebrate something beautiful that's happened, covenant taking place, because he himself has come to this earth to start covenant, to make a new covenant with his people so that they might come to him and celebrate in the future when it's fully consummated, when he comes and the church, his bride, is fully there. Dave and I will often say this at our weddings, that every wedding is a picture of the great wedding that's to come. Wedding and wedding celebrations have everything to do with Jesus. This has everything to do with us, Mary. Let's fix it. It's almost like they're sidekicks. Batman, Robin, you know, Napoleon Dynamite and Pedro. Whatever you prefer. If I keep going, I'll probably get myself in trouble. It's almost as if they're sidekicks here. Because what is celebrating? Now, Now, let's actually go on to the next piece here. Jesus... Is he disobeying his father's plan then? He says, oh, my hour has not yet come. I, I can't do this quite yet. Well, when Jesus uses this, this term, my hour, throughout the gospel of John, he's clearly referring to his death, his resurrection. This is, this is how his whole life is designed to come to this point where he's, he's crucified at a certain time and he's, he's resurrected at a certain time. It's attached to, to Passover after certain years of ministry that he's done here on earth to get, to get this whole thing called the church rolling. He says, my hour's not yet come. And so what he's really saying is, it's not that I can't do this. It's like, hey, if we're going to do this, we can't do this in such a way where I get outed as the Messiah. That's going to force me to my death a little bit more quickly than I want it to be, than the plan that we have with the Father. So we have to do this thing on the down low. We have to do this thing on the DL. So, So Jesus doing this miracle isn't in disobedience to his Father. It's not in disrespect to his mother. All three of them are getting together to do something Incredible. Father, Mary, Jesus, they're all teaming up to bless this wedding. And John says to give us a picture of something that we need to know in order for us to be able to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. So Mary springs into action. Do whatever he he tells you. She tells the servants. Uh, We could do a whole sermon on just that. Don't skip past that. This is Mary being an evangelist. This is what an evangelist does. They go to people, and they say, whatever Jesus tells you, do it. Just do it, whatever he tells you. Get that done. Do it. Do it. Often it comes with a, a, this is what the gospel is, and so this is what Jesus is calling us to, so you should do that. Or it can be like, oh man, if you ever hear Jesus come up in your life, say anything. You do that. You just do that. This is, this is the work of an evangelist. You can trust Jesus. Do it. That's what Mary's saying here. She's being an evangelist. So y'all are in a big pickle here. There's this huge wedding celebration. You're out of wine. Jesus is about to get you out of this pickle. So whatever he says, you better do it. Do it. Are you in a pickle? Better do what Jesus says. It's going to go great. So let's look at this miracle to see what happens. What's the first element in this miracle? He sends the servants on a water run. On a water run. He says, fill these things all the way to the brim with water, which if you do the math, that's a total of 120 to 180 gallons of water. Oh my goodness. So the servants go over to the sink. They start filling them up. Nope. Nope. No, there there, there are no sinks. This is the first century, guys. They have to go to the nearest well. They have to put a bucket down this well. And bucket by bucket, (laughs) bring this water. 
fill these things. You see, as we read it in the narrative, just a second passes. But in fact, several hours could have gone by with them trying to accomplish this task that Jesus has tasked them with. Fill them all the way to the brim, he says. Don't leave anything empty. That's okay. These vessels are several days long, but they do have a large task to accomplish. But while they're doing that, let's talk about these large jars, okay? These large jars. They're, they're, they're big, they're stone, they're meant to hold water for what we're told is Jewish purification. And this is a hand-washing station. This is a hand-washing station where, where uh, the Jews would pour water on their hands, typically one at a time, uh, so that their hands would be both actually clean and, and ceremonially clean. But there, there are six of these stone jars. They hold 20, 30 gallons each. And, and we must ask ourselves, why use these stone jars? Why these ones? Jesus just told us, hey, I, I'll do this, but I don't want to get found out. But then he uses a very central piece of what the wedding is, to actually implement this, this sign, this miracle. He takes these jars, which everyone would have used before washing their hands, and he fills those up with water. He's going to put wine in those. If you didn't want to get found out, what would you use? How about the jars the other wine was in? That would have been great, right? Hey, go fill those up, and then draw those out and bring it to the head. What's going on here? Why? Why? It's strange that he uses these jars in light of his desire to operate on, on the down low. But here's why he takes this risk. He's taking these vessels, which were previously used for Jewish purification, and he's converting them. He's converting them to vessels of Jewish celebration. Jewish purification to Jewish celebration. Mary says, a wedding without wine? What kind of celebration is this? Jesus says, you're right. Let's fix it, but keep it quiet. Mary says, I'll go with the service the servants, and Jesus uses the very element at the party that will capture most closely what he has come on earth to do as the Jewish Messiah, which is to take the Mosaic Covenant, which was aimed towards purification, fulfill that himself, not just a little, to the brim, so that that's all that's left is celebration. This is what Jesus is all about. This is what his life is all about. You see, Jesus isn't just about replacing Jewish religion or law. They're the same stone jars. He doesn't remove the requirement of purification. He just says, I'm going to fill that purification myself so much so that all that's left for you is celebration. I'm going to fill this because you could never accomplish it on your own, those, that, that purification. I'm going to replace these vessels which are for washing the outsides of yourselves. I'll put something in it that you're going to put in yourself in order to celebrate what I have done. Now, is this important just on some abstract theological level? No. This has the most practical, the most practical of implications. This is what we find. This is what we find. In in all of our years of doing ministry, this is what we find. That Christians typically have a hard time holding purification and celebration at the same time. At the same time. You, You likely major on one and minor on another. If, if you don't just fully embrace one and leave the other behind. Okay, it's really hard to hold both of these together at the same time. Let's start with, with those who might focus just on purification. Um, there, there are Christians, and, and I would say I particularly struggled with this one as I was a less mature Christian. 
these are Christians in the purification camp, that, that they become so focused on purification and so focused on how they are falling short, where they need to be purified, and, and, and that, that shame sits on them heavy. Their confidence is completely gone. If you would ask them about their sin, they would go on a long list, perhaps even, of all the sin they've committed over the many years and what they've been struggling with and for how long and, and for how much longer they're going to be able to struggle with this before they're delivered from it. They're crushed by it. They're hyper-focused on purification, you could say. And what happens when you can become hyper-focused on purification is you rarely remind yourself of your forgiven status. You rarely think of God's love for you and sit in that. Sit in God's love for you. That he's forgiven you no matter what you do. They're, They're so focused on the stone jars of purification that they miss out on the wine that's inside. Celebration. And it also has these um, communal implications as well. They, they see themselves as, as righteous guides for those who they come into contact with, where, where, where their drive for, for purification makes them overfocused on that person's sin, other people's sin. They can only critique. They have a hard time telling people they're forgiven and loved by God. They can only critique them. They're, they're obsessed with purification. That's one side. That was me when I was, when I was a, a less mature Christian. Then on the other side, there are those Christians who primarily focus on, on celebration. <clears throat> They're quick to grasp a hold of the forgiveness. That's, 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 that's what it, it means. That's what I'm trying to say. They're quick to grasp a hold of the forgiveness that's offered them in Christ and, and celebrate it. That, that, that they're guaranteed it. God has forgiven me everything in Christ, they'll say. What difference does it make how I live? In a funny relation to this account, they might drink too much. They might sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend, perhaps even move in with them. They don't think it's all that important how they spend their time and their money. They're so focused on the truth that through the gospel, God forgives all, that they've forgotten that the celebration is actually housed in and drawn from jars of purity. Jars of purity. Filled with the righteousness of Christ. Through his death and his resurrection, not only did he fulfill it, but he empowers his followers to a life that looks like his pure life as well. But this doesn't just stop with them either. People who primarily focus on celebration, they tend to tolerate impure lives within the community. They see their Christian brothers and sisters getting tipsy, won't say anything, moving in together, not say a thing. See them living lavishly, Ask no questions of clarification. We're all forgiven. What does it matter? Focus on celebration. You see the dilemma here? On the one hand, we can have people so focused on purity that they're stuck in an isolated life of of shame and critique. And on the other, we have people so focused on celebration that they're stuck in a life of sin and tolerance. And if this maturity, if this immaturity is not rounded out, what do you get? Oof, a lot of this. A lot of this in a community. Well, what's the solution? What's the solution? Well, you could say that those who focus on purity only look at the jars prospectively from the side. From, from the side. It's a matter of perspective here. And the people who are focused on, on celebration are only looking at the jars top down. They don't see the jars from the side, you see. But Jesus uses a word here that's confused a lot of the academics. They're like, why did he use this word to talk about taking water out of these jars? This is only used of wells. He says, 
in verse 7, fills the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out. Draw some out. That's a verb for drawing water out of a well. It's only used of wells. Take it to the head waiter. Jesus is trying to keep the whole picture in mind here. Purity. Celebration. Both are happening here at the same time. Celebration is coming out of purity. Christians who are looking at jars from the side need to recognize that they need to dip into, they need to draw out the wine of celebration. Those who are looking from the top down need to realize they need to take a step back and look at the side and say, oh my gosh, all this celebration of God's love and forgiveness is housed in these jars of purity. That's what my celebration should be rooted in. Another way to say it is like this. Both sides struggle with the same thing. Understanding and embracing the atonement of Jesus Christ. When you understand that Jesus died for your sin, you can't help but celebrate, experience his presence, his forgiveness, his love, his nearness. And on the other hand, when you recognize that by the atonement, Jesus made you right with God, you owe him everything, including how he hoped you'd live your life. Jesus took on our our shortcomings to cleanse us and empower us to live a life like he did. And so this atonement extends us the graces of, you could say, forgiveness and holiness. And holiness. Okay. So that's that's what I want to highlight about these Jewish purity jars. I don't think it's an accident. These are just what was next to him, just what he saw as he made up his mind. He's very intentionally saying, I've come to fulfill requirements of purification that we might truly celebrate and live pure lives as a result. Now, all right, two quick things about this miracle before we move on to the disciples here. Um, two quick things. John highlights both the quality of this wine, the, the head waiter saying, this is, the, this is the good stuff, man. Why are you holding, the, how to, holding out on the party? This is the good stuff. And the quantity of the wine. The sheer amount of wine that Jesus just made would have been something like 600 to 900 bottles of wine. <laughs> That's a huge number. You think this party underestimated their needs by 600 to 900 bottles? I doubt it. The sheer mass is just overwhelming. It's like 50 to 75 cases of wine. I did the math. It's so much wine. God's blessings are far greater than anything the world's blessings could ever deliver. That's what Jesus is trying to do. God's blessings are way better than anything the world has to give us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that true blessing is found in running to God? That he has true life for you? Or do you feel like you're missing out still? It's okay to be honest. Talk about that in your cadres. Talk about that in your cadres. John is telling us here, We're not missing out by following Jesus. He's got the great stuff for us. Second, the wedding guests didn't know the miracle took place. They had no idea. No idea that that this miracle took took place. And, uh, which is a pity on on one hand, but it's an amazing, I'm not sure if this is what John's doing for us, but it it comes to mind for me. One of the things we love doing um, as as pastors, in pastoral counseling and, and theological counseling is what we kind of say sometimes. Um, we love helping people see where God has extended blessing to them in their life already without them knowing it. Because he's done it so much for you, 
You just weren't aware of it. You just didn't have spiritual eyes to see it yet. And, and part of being a disciple of Jesus is actually reflecting upon your life and going through your story and, and asking God, God, where were you at work in my life? Or even asking those who, who may have, you may have heard, oh, I was praying for you for a while. Hey, what were you praying for me exactly? Oh my gosh, God showed up in that way. God is active in everybody's stories to make them about himself. And so what we do is we pray for God's spiritual eyes to be able to see that and give us more and more confidence in his work in our life, more and more confidence in his goodness, and that he only has good for us so that we might continue to make steps of trust and dependency on him moving forward. Mine, just just mine your history for God's goodness. There's so much of it back there. Now, Let's talk about these disciples who did witness the miraculous sign. The five disciples, we, we, we know who are there, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John. There's this fascinating phrase that, about the disciples at the end here. Did you catch it? It's in verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, which harkens back to chapter 1. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is fascinating. Being a disciple is a little bit difficult for us to understand in in the 21st century um, because it has a deeply Hebrew foundation and was used very, very widely in Jesus' time and still happening around the time of John. And so these readers would have really understood the depths of what it meant to be somebody's disciple. Um, this, the notion of discipleship actually comes from the Hebrew Old Testament where you see all these prophets taking people alongside of them um, in order to succeed their, them in their ministry. One of the, the, the foremost examples would be the relationship between Elijah, who is like, I'm getting old, and he feels God calling him to, to find someone to succeed him, to continue on his ministry after he's gone. And so he, he finds Elisha, and Elisha follows him. Elisha leaves his life behind. It's gone. To go and follow Elijah wherever Elijah goes. Serve Elijah in whatever Elijah needs. And, and by so doing, to learn what it's like to be Elijah and do the things Elijah did. You see, Elijah makes himself relationally completely available to Elisha. So much availability with him every waking moment almost. That availability leads to the relationship needed to extend training. That training extends the mantle of leadership that gets distributed. So there's like this this very long chain that that happens here. We see it most clearly in Elijah and Elisha, but it happens all the time. Moses, Joshua, actually Isaiah even makes mention of of his disciples. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah had disciples. Um, Ezra shows up on the scene. Um, after, you know, when Israel's coming back into the promised land, after being exported and, and deported, coming back 40 years later, he comes up on the scenes and sets up systems of discipleship. And, and what I want you to take away from this brief little excursus is, is that the relationship between master and disciple is the one where the disciple leaves everything behind. Everything behind to, to follow the master, to serve the master, 
And, and by so doing, be present in all the little teaching moments of the day to essentially, by osmosis, become the master's successor. And we actually get this. This is present in, in our, our 21st century. I actually read the, the email that Andy Jassy sent out to all the Amazon employees was last week, I think, where he was saying, hey, all y'all got to come back to the office three days a week. You have two, a little over two months to figure that out. I said, oh, that's pretty reasonable, I think. Pretty reasonable ultimatum. Two months, come back to the office three days a week, you know? But one of the central thrusts in, in his letter that he touched on in a bunch of different ways was this. You need to be available to us. You need to be, not just so that we can solve problems and innovate, but to transfer culture. You see, Andy Jassy gets discipleship. He says, you need to be available so that the relationships can be created that don't just like accomplish things together, but train you in our culture so it can be passed down to you. Andy Jassy gets discipleship. He gets it. Now, the purpose of Amazon's discipleship is to get packages to your door really, really fast among other things, and it's great, and we all love it, right? It's great. But the purpose of Hebrew discipleship is what? Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Ezra. The purpose of the Hebrew discipleship is revealing the word of God to the nation of Israel. And by so doing that, the, the, the whole world. That is to reveal the word of God. Now, does that sound like something that might get John excited? Go back and read chapter one. In beginning was the word. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's what he's all about. Revealing the word of God to the nation of Israel, to the world. This is what's likely in the minds of these guys as they're following Jesus. I know it's just day, week one. It's just week one. But this is likely what's in their minds. This is a construct that they grew up in, that they knew very, very well. Andrew and John were previously doing this with John the baptizer. They've come over. They have a very good understanding. Okay, we are leaving everything we have behind. Jesus said he's going to be available to us so that he can establish a relationship with us that trains us not just on what he's teaching, but how he's embodying it. That's the culture of it all as well. 14 principles class plug. Better be there next week. Okay. So that he can distribute his leadership to us moving forward that is geared towards revealing the word of God to the world. Nathaniel's already said, you're the son of God. And here, what does it say? And they believed him? They've already given up everything. What's going on? They've left everything. They've confessed him as the son of God. And John says, and now they believe him? What? We, we must be misunderstanding. Why does he say this? See, John is trying to make crystal clear for us something that can become confusing about being a follower of Jesus that had become confusing back in the first century and has been confusing every century since. That giving up everything to follow Jesus is the first step, not the ultimate goal. It's the first step. Now, now don't get me wrong, over the course of our, our lives, we, we learn to trust Jesus with more and more and more. But I would argue there's no gradual entry into Christianity. There's a sudden realization of, oh my gosh, I would give anything to follow this guy. It's the entry. It's the entry gate. It's the entry gate. And once you've done that, you're nowhere close to being done. Nowhere close. This is why here at Sedaris we have uh, our, our principle number two, never stop considering. 
The disciples had considered once already that giving up everything to follow Jesus was the thing to do when they encountered him, but they keep on beholding his glory. They keep on encountering new parts of him. They keep on seeing him reveal even deeper sense of who he is and what he can do and what he's up to here in this, in, in this universe, on this earth, in Cana of Galilee. And they say, or Cana of, of, of Galilee. And, and they say, oh my gosh, we trust him even more. We can depend on him for even more. He can even bring wine to our wedding if we need him to. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. When we gave up everything, that wasn't the end goal. It was just the beginning. We're beholding more and more and more. You see, for almost 2,000 years, Christianity has been prone to becoming apathetic towards Christ. We think no different. We think we've arrived. We conclude we've learned. We've, we've mastered it. But when we do that, we've actually just fallen asleep. John is writing to say, wake up. You've become bored with the most enthralling being to ever exist. Wake up. You've given up everything to follow Jesus? Great, your journey's just begun. You've been following him for a while? Great, your journey's just begun. It's an eternal journey. Well, how can an eternal journey never become boring? Only if you're pursuing someone who's infinite. See that? What wins out? It's a fun thought experiment. You see, the, the question isn't, when did you believe in Jesus? It's a good question. When did you, when did you leave everything to follow him? That's, that's an awesome, powerful question. But what John wants us to ask perhaps is, when was the last time you trusted Jesus more? When was the last time you knew you could depend on him in an even deeper way? When was the last time you caught a new glimpse of who he is? That, joy, that something happened within you where you knew that you could lean even more on him. That maybe there was even parts of you that you didn't even know you had that you could rest on him. When was the last time you felt your trust deepen in God? That, talk about that in your cadres this week. When was the last time you felt your trust deepen in Jesus? Now, now, for some of us, it, we, we might feel shame to say, oh, it's so long ago. I've, I've, that's okay. This is an invitation to come back. It's only week one of the ministry. It's only week one. Come back. Start sharing with one another how you encounter Jesus in his freshness and his newness and newness in intimate ways. How do you pursue a relationship with Jesus? The age-old question so that you can encounter more and more of him. It starts with his word, but it moves beyond that. I hope you show up tonight like Dave said. <laughs> because coming together with his saints is where the spirit of Christ shows up. That's another way that you can encounter Jesus again and can conclude, oh my gosh, I can trust him more. I hope that you can come. Because leaving everything behind isn't something that we strive for, it's the entry gate. And until you do that, your life never truly starts. But once you do, it's a thrill. And we never stop considering. So let's pray.